The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. One poll out since the debates concluded. Hillary Clinton improved and netted five points. I asked this question on Twitter. Pesca, me, that's P-E-S-C-A-M-I, said, what is, name this period, this period we're in, where you're not quite sure if what you saw and what you sensed and what you felt was actually real, but then it will be confirmed or denied by a poll. We need a poll to see if the event actually happened. We wait, and then it's confirmed. Then the same thing happened with the conventions. Do you have a word for this interregnum? You let me know on facebook.com slash slate gist, the weird liminal period. But I am not worried. I haven't been worried for a while. Say she'll be up 47 to 43. Let's say I'll throw that out there. I'm just being a pundit. It's not hard for me to make such a statement. What I do, what I am finding is hard is for people I'm talking to, for friends of mine, just to say how this debate will land to people that they don't understand, right? So my friends say, well, I thought Trump did abysmally, but who knows what people will think. They are distrusting their own sense of what the public will say because maybe they saw this crazy election season and they say, I don't know, nothing makes sense. Everything is upside down. I can't trust my perception, my intuition. Well, If everything were upside down, literally upside down, you'd be able to calibrate that. You don't really mean that everything's upside down. You mean that everything is not normal. I do think, though, that rules apply. We might not know what those rules are, but there are rules. Let me make an analogy. It's not that gravity doesn't exist or that the rules of gravity are random. We're simply on another planet. They have gravity. We just don't know exactly what it is. They have some version of polarity, but it's different. It's not like a substance on this planet will sometimes float in the thin atmosphere, but sometimes it will sink into the land. It's just that we don't know exactly what the rules are, and they're definitely not the rules we're used to. But we do know some things, some consistencies, that Trump has been hurt when he engages in high-profile insults. It happened with the cons. It happened with Serge Kovaleski. And Hillary, when people pay attention to her message, she registers as competent. And that happened after the Democratic convention. And versions of both of these things happened during the debate that everyone saw. I do want to break off one piece of this, though. So the general consensus was that Trump unraveled, meaning he started off fairly raveled. Here's a taste. It's uh, Tim Miller from Keeping It 1600, then Emily Bazelon and Jacob Weisberg from our Trumpcast GabFest reaction podcast. I thought that Donald, unfortunately, um, you know, was believable for too long. Uh, and I think that uh, that's gonna, when you're looking at Republican voters, like, are they really going to drift away from him after that? I thought that Trump was very effective in the beginning. Uh, his answers on trade, he was taking it to Hillary Clinton. On- I think he got an OK start, mainly because Hillary didn't want to defend NAFTA. They're not wrong. It was self-evident that Trump lost it when he talked about Barron, the hacker, and the cyber, and Hillary fighting ISIS her adult life, and claiming he didn't tweet that which he did tweet. But as Ezra Klein notes in Vox, that beginning where he was composed and convincing is also totally wrong. Like, Ford is gaining jobs in Michigan, not losing them. Ohio and Michigan have lower unemployment than most places nationally. China is not devaluing its currency. It's doing the opposite, if anything. I could go on. The Trump people would say, this is exactly what we wanted to say. This is the message we wanted to give. That's fine. 
I'm sure the campaign was pleased how he came off. And if the question is, was that the performance he was after? Maybe the answer is yes. But if the question is, is Trump right? The answer is certainly no. And not in a, well, we can differ on policy prescriptions kind of way. On his facts, on his analysis, on his assertions, he was inaccurate, flawed, and wrong. He perfectly articulated a strategy. It's just that the strategy would be a fairly huge mistake. Just wanted to note that. On the show today, they took me out to the ball game. They bought me some peanuts and oh damn, they lost the engagement ring. But first, Matthew Dix, Storyteller Supreme, is here to talk to a listener about his homework for life. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. I'm joined now by returning champion and a man I once dubbed the most interesting man in the world. He's a storyteller extraordinaire, Matthew Dix. He's told us some of his life story over the years. He's told us how to tell stories. It was almost a year ago, he just dropped a reference to making a diary or keeping a journal. Hey, Matt, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm, I'm well. So what was this technique that you actually do in your uh, real life and how it helps you with storytelling? Well, I want to push back and say, don't call it journaling ever. Because okay. yeah. um, journaling implies that you have to write a large amount of material, and I kind of... And doesn't it also imply uh, those kind of sheets with outlines on it? Yeah. And like it, moleskin and then unlined sheets. And the person, by the way, there's only a certain kind of person that's a journaler that yeah. continues to do it. And yeah, it's a, stra- just, it's a scrapbooker five years later, right. I think. Yeah. They're just yeah. people, it's a different breed. <laughs> uh, what I believe in is simple strategies that can be applied every day and that they're short, you know, they're digestible, and they make big differences. So I use Excel, um, but I... I over the years, I've found people use many different things. Excel really is the anti-journal. It's, it, it's very unprecious. Well, I love Excel because it limits the amount of writing you can do. Mm-hmm. And once you limit your writing, the job becomes easier. So every night before I go to bed, I say to myself, if I have to tell a story about something that happened today, as benign, as awful as that story may be, what's the moment from today that makes it different than yesterday. And I write it down, and it's often not even a sentence. It's just a couple phrases that will bring the day back to me. And then over time, I make the argument, and I believe it's true, that you'll begin to develop a lens for storytelling. So that you'll start to see things in your life that you would have never seen as stories before. 
So my wife always says Matt can make a story out of anything, but that's not really true. What it is is I see more stories in my day than most people do just because I'm constantly looking for them with this lens that I've developed. What, what was today's story? Or what was last night's story? Uh, last night's story, I bought my wife bagels and locks because she's not feeling well. And I went out in the morning. I got the bagels and locks. I put them on the table because I was going out to play golf or something. Yeah. So I went upstairs. She's sick and in bed. And I lean in and I say, Alicia, I got you some bagels and locks when you wake up. And she said, why did you do that for me? And I said, well, you're sick and I wanted to do something nice. And she said, oh, okay, that's great. And then I left the room, and as I was walking down the hall, it occurred to me that she asked me why I did something nice for her, because it had been so long since I'd done something oh. nice and surprising yeah. that it caught her off guard. So I had a moment walking down a hallway where I realized, damn it, I don't do those little things that I used to do to surprise her, and I need to do a better job of that, or that's just me, and maybe that's the way this relationship's going to be. She seems pretty happy anyway, but I had that <laughs> mental debate down the hallway, and I thought, this is the moment, because now I can tell a story, if I needed to, about sort of, I'd start with our, the beginning of our relationship and all the surprises I would do for her, and I would advance it to the day I bought her bagels and locks, and she couldn't quite figure out why I was being nice. What about the details? I mean, so much of a good story and your good stories are remembering those little details. If you're only writing a second, a sentence or two, do you worry that those details will be lost? I, ca I try to capture the details that I think I would use in a story. You know, I like to say that in a story, you're going to use an adjective or two every minute. And that's about it. So I'm going to say, I said hallway, because I want it to be the idea that I'm walking down a hallway. Yeah. I like that. I wrote that Alicia was sick and in bed. I wrote bagels and locks. Those are the details that I need. Anything okay. else I can fill in. Yeah. All right. Well, one of our listeners, after you mentioned this, and it sounded like a good idea and like a lot of good ideas, I say, great idea and do nothing with it. That's me. <laughs> but one of our listeners did something with it. In fact, the thing he did was what you told him to do, which is to keep a journal, not, not a, a journal, journal, for a year, to keep an Excel spreadsheet. And that listener's name was Travis Ben. It's clearly not your real name, is it, Travis? No, it's it's my uh my my christian name yeah ben yeah. you're of a long line of bens it's uh it's pretty rough whenever you have to ask for your credit card at a bar yeah travis It'll... my last name is dix i have no sympathy <laughs> for you <laughs> it's a rough one middle school must have been rough travis did you get the idea for homework for life not journaling as uh, matthew dix call it calls it did you get that when he mentioned it on this show Yes, I did. So what were, uh, what were the biggest challenges with following through on Homework for Life? Well, there have been some uh, weeks where I've had some heavy-duty projects that have uh, some sleepless nights. Mm -hmm. Those days, whenever they blend together, trying to pick out something that actually sticks out in those days, that can get rough. Although I would think, tell me, Matt, uh, a day like that where a lot happens can be really great fodder. Yeah, but I do understand what Travis means. I always tell people you have to do it at night because for some reason sleep sort of washes away the day a bit and takes away some of the brightness. And I get, I would imagine if you're up all night, sort of that might just destroy all of the brightness of the day and it might be harder to pick things out for that reason. Well, I've actually been doing it uh, in the morning as soon as I get to work. It's become habitual at this point. Yeah. So it's, you could call it a reflex. So it's uh, reflex reflection. And I'm definitely going to include this whenever I journal tomorrow 
it'll be the first time that it's actually reflexive. Oh my God, it's the it's the Mobius strip. But this is what our friend Gretchen Rubin always talks about, which is turning actions into habits. And you seem to have done it and you get a lot, there's a lot of good that can come of that if you get over the initial hurdle. But it sounds like you committed to it and you never look back. Hopefully, you know, it helps me tell better stories to my friends when we're out at bars. Has it? Have you found that that to be the case? I'm not sure that I'm the one to answer that you'd have to ask them they would probably say they'd probably say no i can tell you that when i hear from people about this you know i get emails regularly about people who are doing it the people who are not storytellers but are still doing it lots of side benefits uh the phone call i got from a woman once crying who told me that she felt like she was a more important person now that she used to feel like she was a regular person Mm. i'll never forget the phrase she said i thought i was going to go out quietly and now i feel like like i have import in the world that woman's name was squeaky from she actually hung up before i got her name it kills me i say it whenever i can (laughs) hoping i can find her again are you out there right but she is but just quietly (laughs) quietly doing her daily homework but people tell me that it slows their days down too that they they don't lose those days and people talk about how they're capturing every day and even if they don't do something with it like can you imagine the value of having like my mom has passed away and the value of having like sort of a record of my mom's life like hey when i was 18 years old here were some of the things i was doing in my day you know if i had asked her when she was 40 she probably couldn't even tell me what she was doing at 18 but to have that little bit of her life would be so valuable and i have a lot of people who do it for that reason too it's ar- archaeologically it seems fascinating it makes you savor moments i might i mean if you have kids that's the stuff that goes by really quick. So it'd be great. I'm sure a lot of your journaling, Matt, takes uh, talks about what your kids are doing. Do you have kids, Travis? I don't. But I have noticed, you know, whenever you get kind of lulled into the rat race that, you know, you can see a few rows up and you've actually done quite a lot of things you know, in the past week, and you're like, oh, wow, uh, I actually have done a lot. Yeah, I've accomplished stuff. Matt was just telling me he waits about, what, 100 entries, so a few months before reflecting? Well, I get more than one entry on a day quite often, so okay. a day can have three or four moments, but I get 100, 100 down on my spreadsheet, and then I switch to another one. I actually switched to one this morning, but I won't reflect back on the sheet that I just finished for another sheet away. So it'll be a, it'll be about a month at least before I reflect back. Travis, you've done any reflecting at all? Only when kind of the moment arises. If I have a, uh, a free time, I'll just scroll up and, and kind of go through them. But do you, you say you do 100 rows and then you switch to a new tab? Yeah, I do. Now, for me, I am looking for stories because I want to be on a stage. So my reflection is partly I wait you know, I wait a while and then I look back and I say, okay, which one of these are actually going to be stories or maybe just moments and stories. And sometimes oddly, I'll find something that I'll say, that's not a story, but I need to tell my father-in-law that thing. I haven't gotten, I haven't mentioned this thing to him that happened and he'd be interested in it. So sometimes I'm actually marking things just as like, not a story, not a moment in a story, but got to talk to Pesca about this thing that happened to me a month ago that, you know, suddenly occurs to me as more important than I thought at the moment. Yeah. And I, and and I think that this whole project is a little bit different from a diary in that, I don't know, the I've never done a diary. Um, I've never been a teenage girl. But when <laughs> you do one, I, I think that 
there is almost a pressure. I'm going to write down my innermost thoughts, maybe even thoughts that you don't even know if you believe kind of your most controversial takes on issues or what would be most embarrassing if people knew about them. But if your direction is storytelling on stage, you're not sort of reveling in, I hate this guy or I have a crush on that girl. It's more outward looking and uh, it can be more productive and insightful. Yeah, it's almost always generated by action. It is something that someone has said to me yeah. or something that I have said to them that has caused a reaction in me, but it's not going to, I'm not going to, you know, the the thing that happened with my wife, I'm not going to go on for two pages about the nature of our relationship. And you're not going to do, I hate my boss part six. Exactly. Or my roommates are annoying me. That's the shit that goes in the diary that you want to maybe tell your psychologist. This right. is not, this is not a version of a psychologist. This, no, yeah. no, it's very much action oriented. It's the things that are happening to me and being said to me. And then in a story, I might go a little deep. So I might mention something that my boss did that I don't like, yeah. but it's going to be what he did and if I responded to it. And then if I want to tell a story about it, maybe I'll get into my psychology a little bit, but at least I've got the moment captured. So Travis, my last piece of advice would be that if you ever are wanting for an entry, just drive up to Connecticut and give Matt's wife bagels and locks. I hear there's good fodder from that. I hear it yields insight. Yeah, particularly if you don't give her anything for apparently a very long time. Well, that's true. He's had little to no interaction with your wife. (laughs) That's true. He's he's never doing nice things for your wife. (laughs) Travis, what the hell's wrong with you? Apparently, she needs someone to do something nice for her. I can use your zip car, Mike. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) And then I'll diary that. No, not a diary, not a journal, a daily homework. Hey, Travis, Ben, I want to thank you for following through on this project and uh, talking to us today. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks, Travis. I love that he did it. It was. It's awesome that he did it. And it's yeah. how. I mean, when people come to you, uh, it's because they know you through storytelling or the classes you tell. But are people like him who are just doing it for some other purpose? Is that common? It's very common. Yeah. A lot of the workshops I do for storytelling, people don't ever want to take the stage. Uh, mostly, people take my workshops for other reasons. Like guys take it for dating all the time because yeah. they realize on a first date, what they say does not cause them to get a second date. Yeah. So they take a storytelling workshop with me so they can learn how to say things that will actually make someone want to spend more time with them. That's a good sell. And that probably makes someone more interesting, but that wouldn't be the advice I would give to have a more successful first date. To- I don't think better stories get you a better date. Well, I'll tell you, my wife... Someone recently asked my wife in my presence, when did you first fall in love with Matt? And I thought, like, I'm so glad I'm here to hear the answer to this. And I was expecting her to talk about, like, something about my physicality, you know, like the situation. And she said, no, it's never your situation. She um, <laughs> she refreshed my mind. We were friends at the time, and I brought her to Chili's, which is a place you should never bring a girl. And at Chili's, it was our first dinner together, and she asked me a question, and if you ask me a question, I tell you a story. Yeah. And she said, you told me like three or four stories that night, and I realized, listening to the stories, that you were different than anyone I'd ever met before, and I wanted to hear you talk more. And she said, that was the night, six months before we started dating, when I knew we were going to be together. Ooh. So storytelling got me the best spouse in the world. So it does work for dating, and people have told me, like, this really is great. You know, I also have to teach guys to listen. First, That's what I know. would say. Right. Well, I, I would, start with that. Yeah. Um, but you have to have something ready. 
But nobody understands that. They really don't. It takes yeah. me a long time to make guys understand that you have to talk about your failure and like the embarrassing and humiliating thing of your life rather than the big deal you just landed or the new job. All of that business nobody cares about. I say that's a perfect recipe for a douchebag. And yes. then you just have to find someone who wants a douchebag, but that's really hard to find. Right. So I would say a couple things. The reason that your wife responded and why that was so good, maybe it's not even necessarily that you told good stories, but that you revealed who who you really were. Exactly. Since you're a guy who tells good stories, telling good stories solidified that you knew yourself and she wanted to know you. Yeah. 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 And I, I got like grandfathers who take the workshops because they yeah. can't get their grandkids to listen and people who just want to make friends. People who like at work, I'm at the cafeteria table, I can't get anyone to listen to me or I can't get my mother to listen to me. Every time I go over her house, I want to learn how to tell a good story so I can make her be quiet and I can talk a little. People take it mostly for that rather than being on stage. And Homework for Life for all of those people is much more of a therapeutic, reflective kind of process. And that whole idea about self-deprecating for the mother-in-law test, that works too. Because maybe a reason people aren't listening to you is it's all me, 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 or I got take these two minutes to shove my supposed accomplishments down your throat. And it's much more inclusive to talk about your failings and to make yourself not the hero, but, you know, the clown of a story. Absolutely. Much more relatable. The best introduction I've ever received in my life. It was actually, I gave a TED talk on homework for life. Uh-huh. And, um, as I was getting ready to go on, the woman asked me, how do you want me to introduce you? Because I've got a, like a big bio, and she had the whole thing. Wedding DJ. Right. Teacher of the year. Yeah. Columnist. Exactly. Storyteller. And 23-time grand champion at the Moth. So it's- Guest on the gist. <laughs> Stop me when you're- go So ahead. it's a big list, and I never want it, you know? So I told the woman, jokingly, I said, tell them I'm one step above an idiot. <laughs> and I never thought she would do it. My wife was in the audience, and my in-laws, and she walked out, and she said, this is Matthew Dix. He is one one step above an idiot. <laughs> and it was the best introduction because they're laughing before I even make the stage. So they already think I'm funny. Yes. They know I'm self-deprecating. Right. And they, they're on my side because we're all one step above an idiot. And so I, I was with them and I had them the moment I stepped out there more than any other time in my life. So I've tried to get other people to use that as my introduction, but no one else will do it. And my wife was like, what are you doing? Why do you have them saying that before you take the stage? But it was beautiful because that self-deprecating nature. And to be honest, it's sort of truthful with me. It really works with people. Matthew Dix has, well, you just heard most of his resume, and we can safely say that he is now officially one and a quarter steps above an imbecile. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Mike. Tomorrow, I will talk with Malcolm Gladwell, a fine thinker. In 2007, he won the American Sociological Association's first award for excellence in the reporting of social issues. He's done a lot since then. He is a persistent contrarian who has studied the most perplexing issues of our time, but that is not why I had him on the gist. The fundamental problem with Monopoly is there's too much money in the game. In the beginning, you should be having to make difficult decisions about whether you want to buy the property you've landed on. Instead, you just buy them yes. because you can. So what's the point? Yeah. The, po- the whole point of Monopoly is you land on Marvin Gardens, you should have to say, does Marvin Gardens conform to my notion of how, it, how best to win this game? Unless you have to go through that process at the age of nine, the game is meaningless. Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell is on the gist tomorrow. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. We played uh, with zero dollars. How would you decide whether to buy? It's so much better. It's so much better. And now the spiel. 
My friend John took me to the Yankees game last night. The Bombers prevailed, thus denying the Red Sox a chance to clinch the AL East. But that is not important. What is important are the events that befell Andrew Fox as he knelt to a knee to propose to Heather Twerwinglinger in perhaps the most romantic gesture one can extend while sitting in Section 328 of Yankee Stadium. But then, well, let's throw to Yes Network play-by-play man Michael Kay announcing the error. You see, up to he fumbles right away. I mean, he's nervous. This is like one of the big moments of his life, and now he can't find the ring. The box is empty. Oh, that poor guy. But then for us, for we in the stadium, the in-house jumbotron quickly pulled away. Like when a couple on the kiss cam starts getting aggressively tonguey, or when the Philly fanatic used to get too handsy with Tommy Lasorda. But up in section 328, the entire crowd was there helping Andrew find this ring. It was not a stunt. It was not a for-the-camera goof. The only goof was Andrew Fox. And here he is later describing what happened to the Yankees' in-house reporter. As soon as I opened up the ring box, it just instantly popped out. Everyone around us was so nice and was helping us, like, really wanting to find as much as we were. Now, did you hear what was underscoring Andrew's voice? No, I don't mean panic, incompetence, or shame. I mean actual underscoring it. Wacky music. Even if you want your marriage proposal to take place in a stadium setting, and I would like to see the stats on what percentage of marriages that started via Jumbotron last, but even if you opt for the in-stadium proposal, if it eventually gets scored by the music of Spike Jones, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. But what do I know? I never played the game, but Nick Swisher did for the Yankees, in fact. Here he is breaking down the film on ESPN's Baseball Tonight, underscored by, yes, wacky music. That by far was one of the more epic marriage oh. moments <laughs> you have ever seen. So where was the ring? As Andrew, in a subsequent after-action assessment, pointed out, there it was, at the bottom of Heather's jeans. She looked down at her pants, and it was right here. It was right there. There's like a little, it folds up at the bottom. It was just sitting in there. Cuffs, Andrew. They're called cuffs. The guy does not seem to be a master of details, or even the big picture. In fact, I'm surprised he found the ring, but he's not a fan of the Cubs. He's a fan of the Yankees, and they find the ring. Heather said, yes, by the way, the couple has not announced a date, but given the Yankees play this year, it would seem that all of October is available. And that's it for today's show. From the time she was a little girl, just producer Mary Wilson always dreamed that her proposal would happen during a C-SPAN call-in segment, possibly from a bow using the independent line. Chris Berube, just producer, has plans to fall to one knee during a broadcast of Hockey Night in Canada, but Don Cherry is spoken for by Blue. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is not a fan of these stunt proposals, though he's done research on nuptials taken while skydiving underwater or riding a burrow to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And those marriages last, people. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, actually did propose via podcast, but since his then-girlfriend was not a Slate Plus subscriber, she never knew about it. The gist. We're dropping to one knee in order to ask, will you make me the luckiest man in the world and pay for my knee replacement surgery? This is the eighth time I've fallen down today. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.